He's one of the country's most respected trial lawyers, and he's also an author. He's, in fact, the best-selling author whose crime fiction is often find, found right in your own neighborhood supermarket. Robert K. Tannenbaum is both the former Homicide Bureau Chief at the New York City District Attorney's Office and the former mayor of Beverly Hills, California. He's taught advanced criminal procedure at his alma mater, UC Berkeley's distinguished Bolt Hall School of Law, and while still in his 30s, served as deputy chief to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Robert Tannenbaum. Good to be with you. Well, I guess the first question I want to ask is, how does somebody get from being former homicide bureau chief in New York to a best-selling author? I had always wanted to write, and I, I never thought it would be in this genre, but when I was trying these cases in Manhattan in the DA's office, and I went there right out of law school to start my career, uh, the DA then was Frank Hogan, who was an apolitical um, uh, legend in the business, uh, had four-party endorsement when he ran. He was a lifelong Democrat, but he always had Republican, liberal, and conservative party support, so the office was very much apolitical, and he ran it on a merit basis, so sort of an anomaly, uh, a real oddity, if you will, with respect to particularly government, much less any other institution around. But it was a great training ground. I was fortunate to get into the Homicide Bureau, uh, and try some of the most vicious, depraved killers. I wanted uh, the public to know about what is involved in the nature of really running a Ministry of Justice, not just some DA's office with some hack political types, uh, an us and them mentality, but truly carefully evaluating, qualitatively analyzing all kinds of cases, all kinds of corruption, if any, and particularly corruption within the system. So uh, there was a whole panoply of issues that I wanted to present, and I've been able now uh, to uh, come out in uh, July with Hoax, which is my uh, 18th book. The first two books I did were nonfiction, Badger the Assassin and uh, The Piano Teacher. Yeah. These last 16 have been a series of novels based upon, in part, my experiences of cases mostly that I've investigated and tried as a prosecutor in Manhattan. Uh, and as you know, this, the, the novels deal with a hero and a heroine, and uh, they get together two former assistant DAs who meet and their lives come together, and that's what these stories are about. They're really value books about, in my judgment, the world according to Tannenbaum, what uh, are the kinds of things and considerations that we care about, uh, and particularly when you're dealing with the government and what people should demand from the government. You say, as you know, but in fact, I had not, I was not familiar with your fiction work. Uh, I just picked up Enemy Within, and I got to express some, some dissatisfaction that it's a great book, Mr. Tannenbaum and I went out promptly and bought Absolute Rage, True Justice, and Falsely Accused. Now, that's the spirit. That's the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my familiarity with you comes from the work you did actually on the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I was just picked up a copy of Gate and Fonzie's great book titled The Last Investigation, where he's... Um, He's referring to what you were up to and Dick Sprague back then. And can you, people, we talked about this on our program a few months ago. Can you sort of briefly uh, relate what, what you were up to at age 30 when you found yourself on this very interesting panel? Well, my boss, uh, Frank Hogan, had died. I thought he'd live forever, and I'd be in the Manhattan DA's office forever, be in a happy camper, running the homicide bureau, living in an apartment uh, uh, in, in uh, Gotham. And, you know, that was going to be my life, basically. Uh, fortunately, uh, I'm married to a saint who also thought that would be a lot of fun. And uh, regrettably, uh, Frank Hogan died as a mortal, and the office then became political, and I wanted out. I didn't want to stay in an office, any office, uh, particularly a law enforcement office that was political. And uh, I got, during this period of time, I uh, was in charge of training of the legal staff. I was uh, running the Homicide Bureau, I was in charge of the criminal courts, and 
I still wanted out because I didn't want to be part of any kind of political considerations uh, involved in, in case management. That's not what I'm about. It's not what the DA's office should be about. So, Which you notice I, is quite, quite, a, quite one of the major subplots in Enemy Within, this issue about you know, politics involved in, in prosecution of the law. And that's a big theme throughout my books, to expose how the powerful corrupt. So what, what happened was I was asked, um, out of the thin air actually, a uh, telephone rang one day, and I was asked to be the deputy chief counsel to the House Committee investigating the assassinations of Martin Luther King and President Kennedy. And I met with Richard Sprague, and I frankly told Dick Sprague, who was a fabulous person, uh, a great lawyer, an honest man, uh, that I'm not the person to bring to Washington the Congress, which was, operates politically on the basis and notion of compromise. You can't compromise on a, on a criminal investigation. There's just no way to do it. There's no, political, um, there, there's no political way, there's no democratic way, Republican way to gather evidence. There's no liberal or conservative way to evaluate evidence. Uh, and there's no political way to, to present evidence to a jury or make uh, a charge against somebody, which is very serious. But in any event, I, I went to Washington. Uh, they, they promised me one thing, that, that we would be permitted, I would be permitted in, in conducting the investigation, to investigate the case the way I did with cases that I was handling in the DA's office. And that was on the merits. And if there were no case, that is to say, if Lee Harvey Oswald uh, did it and he did it alone, and that's what the evidence said, that's what we would say. And if it were otherwise that Oswald uh, didn't do it or did it with others and there was foreign intervention or some other intervention, foreign meaning third-party intervention, then if the evidence suggested that, then we would say that. I had not read one book, excuse me, other than uh, Mark Lane's book, right. uh, Rush to Judgment, before I went to Washington. So I had a pretty basic, uh, uneducated view of what happened in the assassination. That is, the New York Times said the Warren Commission was absolutely right, it was uh, the gospel. And you had some lone dissenters out there, particularly Mark Lane and others. Uh, and I had no brief one way or the other. If anything, I had an inclination that it was basically Oswald. And I, and I said this to the members of the committee. I didn't have any firm conviction, obviously. Did you, quick, did you quickly find that uh, there were some doubts? We found, uh, bottom line, that there were some serious questions with respect to the Warren Commission report. That was uh, an abomination as far as reports go, if you will. That is, the, the lack of follow-up, the lack of uh, disclosing to the American public all of the exculpatory evidence that existed in that case, which is uh, uh, could fill of volumes itself, about Oswald not being the sole assassin, and the involvement, potentially, of uh, CIA operatives who were involved with anti-Castro-Cuban types, uh, with a, a, a lot of evidence suggesting that there were a lot of serious questions that had to be answered by major people who were then involved with those organizations. Uh, my, my take on, on, on what ensued is, for having heard you speak on this subject, is that you and Dick Sprague no sooner got the ball rolling in what was going to be a pretty good investigation when Congress stepped in and cut your legs out from under you. Basically, that's what happened. They took away our telephone privileges, believe it or not. We couldn't make long-distance calls. They took away our franking privileges, which is the ability to send letters. You couldn't uh, make long-distance calls? They wouldn't let us make long-distance calls from <laughs> our office. Could you imagine? And this was the taxpayer's, oh, wow. taxpayers' money was being spent for this alleged investigation. And the reason for that was we were able to determine uh, down the line that the third-ranking member of the CIA in that whole time of 1963, which was a relevant period of time of the assassination, uh, was involved with major anti-Castro-Cuban activity. We had determined that 
there was a, a perjurious statement made to the committee by this high-ranking CIA officer. It was done uh, uh, in executive session, and um, I wanted this person to be called back with a lawyer so that he would have a chance to explain his position. The committee then balked. Uh, but there are very good people on that committee, too. I don't want to... Well, a lot of good work was done by that investigation, but it's clear that once you and Sprague were removed from the scene and, and you were replaced by Bob Blakey, that it, it appears to all parties, I think, that are objective that the fix was in. I was asked by the committee, and again, I say there were some excellent members on that committee, but uh, like so much else, uh, a lot of the members of, of committees, minority and majority members, take marching orders from uh, the leadership. They really didn't want to see an honest investigation. That is, the majority did not want to see an honest investigation, in my opinion. I suggested to Dick Sprague, uh, I said that I think we should resign. He says, well, I'll resign. There's no need for you to resign. I said, no, if I'm telling you to resign, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm telling you to resign. I'm not hanging around. And the transition then was uh, with uh, uh, those who came in after us. And, and their major function really was to write a report. Uh, right. major Cl close the investigation and write a report. And it's sad because uh, I can't sit here and tell you who, in fact, murdered the president. I wouldn't speculate. I would only tell you what the evidence was that we had amassed. And, and how would you uh, summarize that in, in two sentences? There were major, major questions about CIA involvement and, and, and perhaps rogue CIA involvement with certain anti-Castro-Cuban groups who were intent on killing the president. That means that a lot of questions had to be asked, a lot of probing had to be done. That was a very prime area. There, was a, there were a lot of deceptions that were uh, disseminated by some very high-ranking members of the CIA. I said the third-ranking member, for example. Uh, what was his name, by the way? Uh, David Phillips. A lot of, lot of serious questions yeah. that had to be explored, had to be probed, never done regrettably. Still answered, unanswered to this day. Unanswered to this day, which would have helped immeasurably, in, in, in my judgment, in my opinion, in the truth-finding process. So what was next for you after, this is like the late 70s, uh, th right. this, this House Select Committee is not going to work out. What, what did you do next, career-wise? worked on Wall Street for a while, and then I um, was a name partner with uh, Richard Sprague and his firm uh, in Philadelphia. And... Um, I just didn't want to raise my family back in the Northeast at that stage, and certainly I wasn't going to do it in Philadelphia. Forgive me for everybody in Philadelphia, <laughs> but I love you all. If I was going to live anywhere in the Northeast, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jewish kid from Brooklyn, so I'm not going to live anywhere but in Manhattan okay. if I have a choice. But uh, who, who do, I don't want to live in Manhattan uh, to the extent that you, if you, you have a choice to live in Southern California. Now, you, you California, of course, is near and dear to me because I spent seven years at Berkeley, college and law school, right. and my wife is uh, from Southern California. So it was natural for us to pick up. I was no longer working for Frank Hogan. That's the one place I wanted to work. That's the reason I really went to law school. I never went to law school as this was going to be my uh, vocation to uh, be involved in Wall Street and represent corporate giants. Nothing wrong with that. You know, you get a cushy life to a certain extent, to the extent you have any life with respect to working in those firms. But uh, that was not what my life's ambition was. Uh, we went back out to California where we have raised our family, and thank so, God we're here in Southern California, <laughs> not shuffling snow back in our <laughs> New York. Is that when the book started, early 80s? Uh, yeah, well, actually, the first book came out in 79, which was Badger the Assassin, which was a nonfiction book about the two, uh, about the uh, Muslims who uh, murdered two police, executed two New York City police officers. Now, I understand that this was made into a TV movie and that you were played by none other than James Woods. That's right. And Yafit Koto played the detective, uh, who was fabulous, who was fabulous. It was a lot of fun. And it was an example of coordinating a nationwide uh, law enforcement group to 
to hunt after these killers. And we were fortunate to have, I was fortunate as the, the DA in charge, uh, to have a great detective, Frank McCoy in San Francisco, and Cliff Fenton in New York, uh, Don Basler in New York. And it was a very, very exciting story, but it's also a story of the kind of resolve that is truly needed when you fight evil. But it, there, are a, there are a group of people, unfortunately, who are lurking around in the shadows who commit vicious, depraved crime. We now know it on an international scene as well, who are not receiving the rational points of view that we're offering. Yeah. And it's a very, very difficult reality for a lot of people to deal with who have not come up in the ranks, as I did, you know, dealing with the vicious, depraved murderers in Manhattan. Yeah. Well, you, uh, in, your, in your fiction which I imagine ensued shortly after Badge of the Assassin, you're able to address a lot of these philosophical greater issues about uh, how one prosecutes, what, what, what the issues are in the law. Without question. and I, it, it, it is, in my judgment, those, based upon those two promissory notes. It sounds corny, perhaps, but I believe it. And those two promissory notes that we all have, the Constitution and, and the uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, and then the, that we strive to make that real, it seems to me. And uh, we're not there yet, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and uh, we we want we we work for it. We we care about equal rights. We care about human rights. It's a definition of who we are. In very in large measure, one of the reasons why I've chosen to do the novels in the fashion that I'm doing them is that the criminal justice system is is really an expression of who we are. If we want to have draconian sanctions for petty anti crimes, well, you better believe we can cut down on crime, but the chilling effect would be devastating. You're talking about things like three strikes. Exactly. Three strikes for stealing a slice of pizza is your third strike. If I'm the DA and the guy s stole a slice of pizza, I'd buy him a, f a pizza, try to get the guy a job. What are we trying to accomplish in the justice system? We yeah. want to get violent criminals off the street. We want people to have a comfort level to know that if they have, uh, that they have security in their homes, that we have security in the workplace, in the streets, and in, in the modes of transportation, and that if some people violate it in a vicious, depraved manner, these violent, vicious rape cases, for example, unknown third party comes, a defendant, uh, and, and engages in that act of uh, depraved violence, or uh, uh, contract killings, or shootings, or uh, random killings, or intentional killings of individuals, uh, those kinds of crimes have to be vigorously prosecuted and professionally handled. Uh, the lack of professionalism I, I see in law enforcement today is stunning and shocking, and the degree of corruption is also stunning and shocking. Really? And it has to be dealt with. I mean, here in Los Angeles, for example, there was a major scandal in the LAPD. Uh, the DA comes in and uh, says, that's it, we're finished investigating it. Well, how do you have any credibility left in your system, and why would you permit lawbreakers who wear blue uniforms to continue to roam the streets. It's anathema to our entire understanding of how the system ought to work. And that's in part why I, I do the books. Was it issues of corruption that led you to run for the, uh, to become mayor of Beverly Hills, which I guess you served two terms as? No, actually, uh, I never dreamed I'd get involved in local municipal government, but our schools were going bankrupt. And the powers that be were more interested in funding a civic center that wound up costing about $120 million for a population uh, in Beverly Hills of 32,000 in a geographical area of five and a half square miles. So the Taj Mahal of civic centers was somewhat an outlandish concept from inception, but to do it during a period of time when the schools were going bankrupt uh, was, to me, an act of mindlessness. 
And so I decided I threw my hat into the ring and knocked on doors, and which you can do in Beverly Hills, and uh, walked the neighborhoods. And so I served two terms, and uh, the result was that uh, I was at, we were able to fund the schools per capita to the largest degree of any city in the state of California. And um, for that, it was worthwhile to do. Are you still practicing law? On occasion, you know, I handle some cases, very few. Uh, I'll pick and choose the ones I'm interested in, but uh, writing takes up uh, a good deal of time, and uh, I'm, I, I, I enjoy that much more, frankly. How long do you produce one of these books? Oh, it takes about nine months. Okay. Uh, the nine months from... In my mind, there's always a beginning, middle, and end. It's not a question of writer's cramp. You look at the blank page. It's just a question of the time, because these are matters, as I said, that I have basically lived through. And uh, it's, yeah. it's just been a, uh, an incredible uh, opportunity. Do you know the ending when you start, by the way, or does it evolve? Beginning, middle, and end is always right down there, and I, I do a detailed uh, synopsis uh, of the book so that it's very clear the direction that we're, we're heading in. And uh, as I say, it, it's, it's just been a great opportunity for me to have a, this vehicle to express the kinds of concerns and, and hopefully entertain in the process uh, about our system and what we should expect from our system because the politicians who run the system define it different from what it really ought to be. And that's because they lower the expectations of what should happen yeah. and what we, we should be receiving, uh, particularly in law enforcement. And that, of course, has a major impact on the quality of our lives. Yeah. It affects everything we do and how we think about what we want to do. Are we safe? Are we not safe? Worrying about our children, worrying about friends, loved ones, and so on. So. Law enforcement is a critical function and should be, there's no substitute for the real hardcore professionalism and truth-telling in the process. Well, you've never lost a felony case, I understand. Had great detectives who helped me. They deserve the credit, believe me. And I want to quote from Jonathan Kellerman about your book. Said, Tanbaum knows how to plot and pace. He writes dialogue that snaps, creates stories that need to be told. What more can you ask from a thriller? High praise indeed. Well, thank you, Jonathan Kellerman. (laughs) <laughs> and your latest book is? Resolved. Okay, and that's out now? It's out, yes. Well, Robert Tannenbaum, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we hope that we can talk to you at some point again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All righty. Bye-bye. Paperback We're glad to have had Robert Tannenbaum on this program. He's a most interesting individual. Uh, and, I, and I do want to say, I did go out and grab Enemy Within, um, and it's a, it's a pretty good read. You know, it's kind of disgusting. This guy is so talented in so many areas. It's rather sad to contemplate uh, what might have happened at the House Select Committee on Assassinations back in the late 70s had Richard Sprague and Robert Tannenbaum been able to continue in their capacity as investigators. A lot more of interest to the American public would surely have been uncovered. All right, that's it for this segment. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for our third and final segment today for a most entertaining talk with adult film legend, Christy Canyon.